and welcome to the first of the Pod Save the King podcasts. My name's Alison and I'm great aunt to Connor who's with me today. And the reason for our setting this up is that we've got a mutual interest in history and politics. We were born in the same month but 40 years apart and we thought it'd be quite interesting to share our views from these very different starting points. So this first podcast is going to be about politics and we're going to talk about the last three months. And Connie, are you going to start us off? Yeah, so we'll start with the resignation of Boris Johnson. Um, I mean, Boris Johnson's premiership, I mean, there's not enough, minute, not enough time in the day to talk about Boris Johnson's premiership. So we'll start with the leadership race um, in the summer. Um so leadership race went to the Commons first and the MPs and then went out to the party membership. The final three, Liz Truss, Penny Morden and Rishi Sunak. We know obviously that Liz Truss won that leadership race. Um so let's talk about a bit let's talk a bit about that. Um so you you had a good point earlier that yeah. I think you'd like to bring up. Yeah. So uh from my perspective it took a long time for them to decide on the next leadership. And there was probably about eight weeks of hustings and scrutiny and debate and discussion. And at the end of it, they decided Liz Truss was the best person for the job. But did they? Another different perspective to that was it was actually a vote against Rishi Sunak rather than a vote for Liz Truss. Because the wider party membership, who were largely Johnson supporters, blamed Rishi Sunak for for bringing Boris Johnson down. So rather, it was Liz Truss was the lesser of the two evils. Yeah, yeah, and I was quite interested uh, interested in that when when you said it, because I've never actually heard that 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 point of view. The point of view that I saw was that. While the MPs and the Commons supported Liz Truss, uh, sorry, Rishi Sunak, the party membership supported Liz Truss. I mean, who wouldn't vote for a tax cut? Um, so I think that's how she won around the public. Um, so yeah, after six weeks of painful um, campaigning from both sides, we came out with Liz Truss as the victor. Um, and, you know, that ended in a 44-day premiership, the shortest premiership on record. Um, so let's talk a bit about that. So, um, when she, you know, got into power, not long after, she released a mini-budget. So she would talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, <clears throat> she praised uh, Kwasi Kwarteng at the Tory party conference, saying what a great chancellor he was. And I think within a week or so, he'd yeah. been sacked. Now, he has said, I think you mentioned it earlier, Connor, that... It was actually, Quasi was saying to Liz Truss, please do not go down this path. It's too fast, too quick, and he was overruled. So where does the blame lie? Well, exactly. Where does the blame lie? Um, You could argue that, you know, Liz Truss was Prime Minister, and regardless of whether it was Quasi Kwarteng's plan or her plan, you know, she had the reins. She could have decided... Whether to have it, whether to not, do you know what I mean? She, it, it was her. She had the final decision. So, in my opinion, I mean, the the, the listeners and you might disagree with me, and I mean, we challenge you to disagree with us. Um, my, my opinion, it was Liz Truss 
Um, regardless of what impact the cabinet have, she chose that cabinet. She appointed them to them positions, and with everything, she had the final say. Well, we have to agree with that, don't we? Because ultimately, the prime minister is in charge. So I just wonder what the rationale was for that decision making that led the country into quite some destabilisation and the Bank of England having to to step in, to stabilise. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, the, the next general election on record is 2024 and it was this thing that, you know, the Tory party had, I mean, on, on the verge of crumbling um, and, they, and it's like they wanted to fix everything with the click of the fingers, ready for the next election. Um, now, in an interview that Quasi Quartan did about a week ago, he basically pointed the fingers at Liz Trust, like you mentioned before. Um, and he claimed that he said, well, you know, uh, our Liz Trust was like, yeah, we've got to get this mini budget out. And then he was saying, well, I mean, you're not going to have, you're not going to make it to the two years if, you know, this mini budget goes out. So it's like some people, well, from my perspective anyway, some people actually expected it to fail, which is a great question of why they went ahead of it in the first place. Yeah, it is quite bizarre, isn't it? Just thinking that the country's just emerged from a pandemic. Things are unstable, uncertain. There's industrial unrest. Was that really the time to bring in a tax cut for higher earners? Where was the judgment on that? Well, exactly. Um, I mean, there are claims that she's like very good friends with the with like the representative of Shell in the UK. Um, so yeah, potentially she had uh, people people's hands in her pockets, should you call it. Um, so it's it's a massive situation, and I mean, I feel like is it our job to judge because we lived through it, as you said, similarly with a different situation previously. Is it the job of future historians to look back and say, well, actually, this was right and this was wrong? Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's very difficult to kind of distance yourself from uh, a historical event as it's occurring and, and just after. So I think it, it is down to the historians to, to look back and make some assessment of the last two years. But I do know that there is a, an inquiry that started on the government's handling of the pandemic and were we ready and what was about the PPE issue, which none of us knew what PPE meant before the pandemic. Well, exactly, yeah. And, um, I mean, these, these, these big situations that are happening in politics at the moment is actually more dramatic than the film industry, than, you know, celebrities, which brings us on to our next point. Yeah. Um, so politicians especially in recent years have become more aligned to celebrity status um, for example you know boris johnson on the zip line he was famous for his gaffes and his jokes and especially in prime minister's questions on wednesdays he was having you know pop at sakir starmer matt hancock recently joining i'm a celebrity get me out of here that sparked a massive debate across the nation um so what what do you think about that um, <clears throat> so, um, I think on first glance, you say to yourself, how can a serving MP possibly have the time to be able to travel the other side of the world and spend X number of weeks in the jungle? Has he not got enough to do with his full-time job? I think that's the first question. But if you go into it a bit deeper, as Connor, I think you already told me that the money has been donated to, to charity, which is a good thing. 
But what's his rationale? What's his reasoning for being in the jungle? And I think he did offer um, a, an answer to that in that he wants people to see the person behind the politician. Do we need to see the person behind the politician? Well, I mean, I suppose it'd help from their perspective, wouldn't it? To, you know, for, for people to know them personally. But I think, as the public, it's not our job to judge them as a person. It's our job to judge their policies. So there's an argument for both sides, absolutely, and both of them are fairly acceptable arguments. But, I mean, from my perspective, as a as an A-level politics student, it's I judge policies rather than personality. Um, so do you think this... Do you think this desire for politicians to be seen as a persona, so Boris Johnson as the joker, Matt Hancock, the um, the person that has got feelings that really did feel terrible about some of the decisions that were made during the pandemic, uh, is, this, is this a way to win votes rather than through policies? Are we getting to the point where it's a bit more like the American model where they seem to vote for the personality rather than the politics? Well, possibly. I, I think I think absolutely. Uh, we've found in recent general elections and even referendums in, in terms of the Brexit referendum, the party leader has a massive impact on mm. election, not only turnout but result and everything else that goes with it. Boris Johnson in 2019 won a landslide victory against um, Jeremy Corbyn and that was his personality. People, I mean... Personally, not really, but many people saw him as, you know, someone that could be related to. He had, he had his top button undone and he didn't look like a normal politician. And I think for some people it was refreshing not to see the same old... And he was like a glimpse of hope in a way. And I think that's what makes his failure as the Prime Minister even more hurtful to the people that supported and trusted him. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the party leader does have a massive impact. Yeah. Yeah. And is that right? Is it is it right that, so for instance, should the next Prime Minister, you know, perhaps invite the cameras into his home, um, spend some time with the family and the children so that they become more relatable? Is that relevant? Is that relevant to the running of the country? Shouldn't it be based on policy and competency? Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, and a- a- along with policy and you know competency as you say i think i I don't know what it is i think for for the electorate it's it's massive to have someone that you can relate to and i I keep referring to you know being able to relate but i think when you can see similarities between you and your party leader it i think it helps um what do you think of that um well i suppose it doesn't do any harm but is it is it that important is it that important to relate to a leader is it not just purely about the policy and whether they deliver or not to me in some respects and this is probably an older person's perspective or just my own i'm not uh, trying to attribute my views to anybody else of my age um, but shouldn't we judge people on what they actually do rather than what they say and how they look and and their personal life? I don't know, maybe that is important to the younger people, that it's not some stiff, stuffy, Oxbridge, 
very privileged person that's that's representing them. I think that is a valid point. And, and we saw that for It's Only Blur, didn't we? Well, not me personally, because I didn't exist yet. But, I mean, in 97, when Blur won the election, he was seen as a fresh-faced, relatable oh, character. Absolutely. Something that, somebody that can bring something new to the table. And, I mean, whilst Boris Johnson, I mean... Sorry to any Boris Johnson supporters out there, but to me, he does not look fresh-faced. And um, yeah, yeah, it just uh, like I said, if if they look if they look different, then they have a better chance of winning. It's like the argument with Sir Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party. Now, he looks like the same old politician. Um, you know, he, he, for many people, he's too perfect, too polished off. And some people commented that during Prime Minister's questions. He seems to be reading a script rather than actually having a conversation. So, yeah, I, th- I think it is really important. Um, now, after, you know, analysing that, all, all that, I think it's right, you know, to, to bring in an alternative view. So I think now we should move on to Labour alternatives. Sure. Yeah, so, um, obviously, after uh, 12 years of the Tory uh, government and a few many failures in the past... A couple of years, I think it's only right that we present alternatives to the policies that they've, you know, introduced. So, um, would you like to lead the way? Yeah, on this? absolutely. So, one of the burning questions uh, that's facing society at the moment is the energy crisis. And just as a slight aside to that, um, ju- this is just a comment on the way the media presents uh, issues of the day. Everything is a disaster, a crisis. And I'm not um, denigrating the fact that the energy crisis I- is real. I'm not saying that. But we do seem to have a very negative um, media presence and, and a sensationalist uh, media as well. So just in terms of the um, energy, what would what would um, Labour want to do? Now, in the manifesto, they have set out um, this concept of having GB energy. So what would that mean? So that's about actually buying back. Now, buying is a very interesting term, isn't it? Um, taking back uh, water and energy and the Royal Mail back into um, public ownership Um, because they've done some analysis and since privatisation water bills have increased by 40% and as we know the energy providers are making exceptional um, profits at the moment um, and so they are offering an alternative and, and actually I really agree with this and I think it is water, electricity and gas are the basics for every household oh, Absolutely. and I think that should be protected and you shouldn't make massive profits against that I'm not against privatisation but it's got to be privatisation that um, benefits society and not just the shareholders. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and on the topic of you know nationalisation and privatisation, um, for, for vital things that our society relies on, 
it's really important that they work efficiently and effectively. Um, now, you might disagree with nationalisation, and there are arguments to disagree, just as there are to agree. But if there's a way... Look at France, for example. Um, so, now there is an argument to say that the French all like, had a certain percentage of the energy nationalised already, so it, it wouldn't cost as much as we would. But uh, President Macron, a couple of months ago, n- um, nationalised the French energy uh, sector. And... That bit, and he, he capped it. I think it was like three or four percent. He capped it, and so bills for the French aren't as high as bills for the English and you know Great British and Northern Ireland and the Northern Irish are. So, I mean that that is a possibility, and if it shows that it works, then why not do it? Yeah, I I agree, and, and let's not try and reinvent the wheel. Let's draw on the benefit and best practice in other countries. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, if if we see a working example, then, is there a reason not to use it? Absolutely. And just as an example of that, um, the Labour Party would like to uh, set up a national investment bank, which is based on the German and Nordic models, and that's to attract private capital finance to deliver 250 billion pounds of lending power right. so it's like an investment but then investment in industry and, and business right okay yeah um so i think that i think that's an example of where let's not try and dream up there it's our vision for the future let's say it's been tried and tested well, that's exactly. what we need more of definitely and more of that and more of honesty as well i yeah. feel like the problem with our current government is that they're not honest. They don't. They, uh, uh, me personally, I would like to. I, I would respect more if somebody has told me that they've messed up and yeah. they're trying to fix it, rather than hiding that they've messed up and pretending that it's all, you know, daisies and roses. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> do you know what? I would really hope that in the twenty first century we can learn on the lessons of the past. And there have been many, many examples of government contracts being signed that are not fit for purpose. And there are many, as I said, there's many examples of that. Um, And I think I could draw on the PFIs, which was a Labour Party initiative. So when Labour came into power in '97 there was astronomical uh, waiting lists, probably that match those that we're seeing today, sadly. And the infrastructure, the hospitals were crumbling, etc., etc. Lack of investment, we all know the story. So one way of building new hospitals and kitting them out was to have private private finance initiatives, PFIs. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? You get, you get the private sector to build hospitals. But unfortunately, unless those contracts are watertight, watertight, what you end up with is a legacy for the next 20, 30 years where you're paying back, which is okay if it's on a reasonable level, but then don't charge £100 to come and fit a light fitting or put a picture up. Yeah, exactly. Those are exaggerated amounts, maybe, I don't know. But that's I think, illustrates the point that if you're setting up national contracts, 
they have to be absolutely watertight and not to the detriment for the next generation to carry this on. Another example of that is the National Programme for IT, which again was a Labour policy. Fantastic idea. We've got all these disparate hospital systems. Let's create a national one. So if I break my leg in London, they can go on the computer and they've got my medical history. That, that's, that sounds brilliant. It failed. Right. Fair enough. Um, right. Now, unfortunately, we haven't had much time to dive deeply into everything. So, to wrap it up, um, we're going to thank you for, for listening to our first podcast. Absolutely. We, we may have been a bit rickety, but, you know, we, uh, we inspire to improve over time. Um, so, we'd just like to finish off by saying... If like we want, we want you to challenge our opinion. We want to spark f- your thought process. Um, and if you'd like to reply or have comments on anything that we've said in this podcast, you can email us at podsavetheking twenty two at gmail dot com. Our Instagram is pod dot save dot the dot king. Um, and so you can message us on Instagram as well. Um, we will do our best to reply to you. And uh, thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye.